Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, today we got a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I always say that. But so let's start with some uh, right wing domestic terrorist threats because that's a blast. Then I think we should get into the escalating trade war between the US and China. There have been some updates on the protests in Hong Kong, updates on Iran, updates on Afghanistan. Some new national security personnel will update you on some of the things we talked about last week at the DNI. Why tensions are increasing between Japan and South Korea. Also in the Kashmir region, the Trump administration made another move against Venezuela. There is some concern that arms control treaties are dying. And then finally, Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, it's not going well. No, not for Lindsay Lohan, not not for for arms control. Not for arms control. Our guest is former National Counterterrorism Center Director Nick Rasmussen, who's worked with Republicans and Democrats to disrupt ISIS plots, Al-Qaeda plots, and unfortunately now domestic terrorist plots. So he's a great guy, works in a bipartisan way and a real expert on this stuff. Two quick housekeeping things. Our August Crooked miniseries is coming out on Wednesday. It's hosted by Crooked Media's very own Shanika McClendon. It's called Rigging North Carolina. It follows the story of a political consultant accused of fraud in the subsequent trial in North Carolina's 9th District. First episode is dropping on Wednesday. It's going to go through the scandal. It's a really great story. Check it out. One other thing, Ben, you have a major piece on Burma coming out in the Atlantic on Thursday this week. Is that yeah, right? so it'll be online on Thursday. It's in the next print edition. You know, a long piece about Aung San Suu Kyi, what happened to Aung San Suu Kyi, the Rohingya crisis, aiming to draw on my own experience, but also some reporting I did traveling to Burma earlier this year to try to understand what is going on there. You know, hopefully people can read it uh, again online on Thursday, and then, you know, we can talk about it uh, next week. And I should add, uh, our friend Samantha Power, her book is coming out September 10th. Yes. So if you want to check that out. Susan Get Rice ready. also has a book coming out in October. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we'll have, you know, a double header there. The book game is strong. Um, I have read your Burma piece. It is not a just the defense of the Obama administration no, no, policy. No. It's a really tough look at what the hell happened. Because yeah. it's something I think all of us have been wondering. Like Aung San Suu Kyi was this Nobel yeah. Prize winning like human rights icon hero. Yeah. Who now, you know, is part of a government that has been engaged in ethnic cleansing. I just wanted to answer this basic question. What what happened yeah. to this person? How uh, were we wrong? Is she the same person? Was she never that person? And so I hope people check it out. Yeah, it's an awesome piece. Um, okay, let's start with this week's just horrible domestic terror news. Nick's going to dig into some of the more policy details later, I think. But we were talking over the weekend about how in some ways what happened with these white supremacists is really the worst case scenario we always feared with Al-Qaeda. These individuals shooting up malls are in the country already. It is painfully easy to get a weapon of war. They figured out that you don't need to do some hardened target like shoot up the Pentagon or the White House. You just go to a movie theater and you can terrorize an entire nation. I'm curious. I mean, you and I, you know, experienced discussions of these policies in the White House starting back in 2009. But why do you think the response has been so slow? And how do you think the government should 
better approach the threat from domestic terrorism? Well, first of all, I think you know there is a, an eerie comparison to ISIS here. Mm-hmm. ISIS kind of figured out, right? You know, Al-Qaeda had guys in training camps, and they were constantly trying to plan these spectacular attacks and hijacking aircraft or putting explosive printing cartridges on cargo planes. ISIS figured out that all you have to do to terrorize people is to walk in a crowd and shoot people. Yeah. ISIS also had a phenomenon where individuals were radicalized online and essentially they didn't need to be a part of a terrorist group. They just went out and acted on that ideology. And it feels like the white nationalist movement has mimicked ISIS. Uh, the radicalization happens online. You don't necessarily have to be in person recruited. You can just self-radicalize and you commit these acts of violence. You know, part of what happened here, Tommy, you know, I remember we had a summit at the White House late in the Obama administration, for instance, on countering violent extremism. Mm -hmm. And that was the name of the summit. And we were mocked widely for not calling it the summit on radical Islam. And people let's just pause on that for one second. That was the single talking point out of Republicans over and over and over again. And the reason we didn't call it that is because we said at the time, actually, there's a threat from white supremacist extremists Mm -hmm. in this country, too. And we had to view the totality of this threat. And yes, their talking point was to minimize the white nationalist threat and say it's all about radical Islam. And that they kind of browbeat the administration, you know, in Congress, this idea that if you talked about anything but radical Islam, you, you were selling out America and you weren't taking the threat seriously. I also think, you know, right now there's an uncomfortable reality, which is that if you were trying to deal with this as a national security challenge and saying, what is the threat to the most American people and how do we put resources against that? Mm-hmm. You would have the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security spending a lot of money and a lot of time trying to unravel what are the sources of white nationalist content? What are the sources of this radicalization? How do we get deeper into communities so that someone who spots this behavior can alert the authorities? And the uncomfortable reality is for them to do that, they'd be essentially pulling a thread on Trump's political base. Mm -hmm. And I have to think that the political pressure of having a president who embraces some of the same narratives as these white nationalists, that kind of makes people think twice about moving in that direction. Yeah, it is a huge, huge challenge. Let's get these goddamn guns off the street and then go from there. Okay, let's talk about China for a minute because this trade war is is continuing and it's rapidly escalating. So late last week, Trump said he was going to slap 10% tariffs on basically all Chinese imports. So those new tariffs take effect on September 1st. They will cover $300 billion worth of stuff, including a whole bunch of things you might want to buy around the holidays like phones or video games or toys or whatever. So then on Monday, the Chinese government devalued its currency for the first time in, I believe, a decade, and the stock market just collapsed. It went down like the Dow went down, I think, 800 points. Uh, Later that afternoon, the Treasury Department in the U.S. responded by labeling China currency manipulator. China has announced that they're going to halt the purchase of American agricultural goods. So like the tit for tat just escalated within one day. So Ben, can we just start with the basics? What does it mean when you devalue your currency? And why do you think China wanted to do it? And what does it mean when you get labeled a currency manipulator by the Treasury? Well, so first of all, China was responding to Trump escalating the trade war by imposing these new tariffs. And as we've said before, these tariffs are not just a penalty on China. They're a tax on the American people. Every single American. Every single American is paying a tax because essentially you're going to pay more you know, when you buy any goods made in China, the price is going to go up because the 
companies that sell those goods are going to factor in the tariffs, right? So you are paying for this. That's the first point. Second point, it's been 10 years since it was seven RMB, that's the Chinese currency, to the dollar, mm -hmm. right? So that means that the, the Chinese acted to make their currency essentially weaker against the dollar. That's a very logical reaction to tariffs because if your currency is weaker, it is cheaper for you to export goods. Mm -hmm. the, the price of the goods you're exporting becomes cheaper. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to make up for the increase in price for the goods from the tariffs by making the currency weaker so that Chinese exporters won't be hurt as much. It frankly also hurts them a bit too because you know it begins to drain their foreign currency reserves. The prices for goods are going up in China as well. But Trump takes this step of labeling China a currency manipulator. What is the effect of that? Nothing. <laughs> you know, right, I yeah. think this is like a really important point. And by the way, pox on Chuck Schumer too. He's been yelling about this for years. But the reality is what happens? You, you're labeling it. It just means you're declaring that we think that they're manipulating their currency. All that means in practice is we go to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and we essentially complain and say, yeah. we think the Chinese are uh, manipulating their currency. Interestingly, under the current level of the Chinese currency, the IMF does not even believe that the Chinese are, are manipulating their currency to the point that they should face a penalty. So this is purely symbolic. Unless anyone think that it's just a bunch of liberals complaining about Trump who said this, basically the chief economists that deal with China at Citi and Goldman Sachs said the same thing. Yeah, it's a political response. But why does it matter? It matters because both Trump and Xi Jinping have signaled that they're not looking for the off-ramp that the trade war will escalate. You know, so it looked like there was going to be an agreement in the spring. Instead of an agreement, we got new tariffs from Trump and the Chinese currency crossing this threshold of seven RMB to the dollar. And Chinese, if you look at Chinese state media, they're gearing up for the fight. You know, they, just like Trump has been attacking China, they're now attacking Trump. They're saying it's patriotic. We have to dig in. We have to fight this out. And so the reason the markets, I think, plunged and the reason we're in for very rocky waters is... Neither China or the U.S. seems to have an end game for this trade war we're in. And the consequence could be ever-increasing tariffs and responses from China. China saying they're not going to buy any U.S. agricultural products. That's a big deal. Huge hit on American farmers. And it's introducing all this uncertainty to the global economy. It's going to make it harder for consumers to buy things, right? Because prices are going up in both the U.S. and China. When consumers aren't buying as many things, the economy inevitably slows down. So what Trump is doing with this trade war without any kind of logical goal that he's shooting at is putting at risk the stability of the global economy and American farmers and American consumers without any sense of like where this plane is going to land. That's exactly right. I mean, so this latest little... Twitter tariff tantrum happened because negotiations haven't been going well. Despite the fact that I think Mnuchin said three months ago that they almost had an agreement, there was another meeting at a high level in Shanghai, and it like ended after one dinner and a, and a quick meeting the next day. Nothing got accomplished. So Trump freaked out and said that you know the China has to follow through on commitments to buy these agricultural products or stop fentanyl sales. So I don't really know what he thinks was agreed to, but you're right, he's completely backed himself into a corner. He's scared of looking soft domestically, but at the same time, the Chinese know exactly where to squeeze him to hurt us economically and politically. So, like, to your point, who wants an off? Like, do the Chinese even want an off ramp? Or are they just going to wait him out and see if they can get a new person to negotiate with? Yeah, no, I think that's why the currency thing matters and the Chinese state media posture matters is what the Chinese are signaling is we're not going to be bullied by you. And China is not Mexico and Canada, which... 
frankly, didn't even make that big concessions to Trump at the end of the day anyway. But, you know, we're the second biggest economy in the world and we can dig in and we can hurt you. And, you know, the important thing to remember here is, yeah, Xi has some politics, but he's not worried about his next election. Right. Right. Yeah. So if there's a trade war and some constituencies in China are hurting, it's not like Xi's worried that he's going to be ousted. What he can do is he can squeeze really hard in electorally important areas. And farmers are in the Midwest. Farmers are in electorally important areas in the United States. So Trump thus far has tried to patch that by shoveling money at, at right. farmers, right? Paying them off. Paying them off, with, I think, $15 billion in assistance, mm-hmm. which you know is real money that we're paying too, right? So we're paying this tax through the additional tariffs. We're paying to bail out these farmers, which is, let's face it, wealth redistribution. It's mm-hmm. just redistribution to people that Trump likes. Yeah, call Joe the plumber. Yeah, exactly. Spreading the wealth around here. And, and, and meanwhile, I think the Chinese have every reason to say, well, let's at least wait and see what happens a year and a half from now in the election um, rather than make kind of fundamental systemic concessions here to Trump and reward his behavior. And, you know, this could precipitate. I mean, everybody file this away because if the economic downturn happens, if there's a recession or a global financial crisis, it's very likely that Trump's actions in this trade war will be a precipitating factor for that. Yeah. Uh, that Joe the Plumber joke was a Obama 08 deep cut. And yeah. credit to you if you get Google. it out there. <laughs> Google Joe the Plumber. Spread the wealth around. Okay, let's stay with China. So the protests in Hong Kong are getting more intense. According to the New York Times, on Monday, protesters disrupted about 200 flights and they blocked roads and railways and they're calling for a general strike. So a government spokesman went on the record and told the Times that 420 people have been arrested and a thousand cans of tear gas have been fired odd thing to go on the record to say. We're a couple months, I think nearly two months into the protests, which isn't as long as the protests in 2014, but they're getting pretty intense. Hong Kong's chief executive spoke for the first time in two weeks on Monday. She's openly siding with China. A Chinese government spokesman for their Hong Kong office has been putting out some very ominous statements today. He said demonstrators have, quote, exceeded the scope of free assembly. He warned them not to take restraint for weakness, called the protesters who attacked one of their offices there rampant and deranged and said a blow from the sword is waiting for them in the future. Yikes. I think you have to wonder if we're going to see the Chinese military, which has a big contingent stationed in Hong Kong, move in soon. It's also notable that Trump has offered no solidarity. In fact, he has basically signaled that he doesn't care, he doesn't think it's our business, and he wouldn't do anything to step in if there is a Chinese crackdown. Yeah, and you know, thus far the Chinese have not used the military directly. We talked about some of these thugs who showed up and confronted right. the protesters. I think the more we learn about that, the more it does become apparent that the Chinese government was probably at least giving a wink to people, if not encouraging people, if not paying people <laughs> to essentially go out and confront the protesters and make this look violent. There's even some uh, reports that they might be leveraging organized crime in Hong Kong uh, to play this role. Uh, so they're playing kind of subterranean hardball. If they roll the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese army into Hong Kong and try to kind of restore order that way, the problem for them is it puts any lie to this idea that there are two systems, that there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's supposed to be one country, two systems. So one country, China, but there's a system in Hong Kong that is freer and more open than the system in mainland China. Mm-hmm. Once you cross the threshold of putting the military, you're kind of putting the lie to that. And frankly, that ends up hurting them in other places like Taiwan, where they'd like to see Taiwan essentially come into the similar arrangement to Hong Kong. 
the Taiwanese are looking at us and thinking yeah, like, is this what we want? Do we want, you know, we have a democracy in a pretty open country. Do we want to essentially be swallowed up by China and have the PLA here in 10 years? The protesters seem to be escalating in response by showing them, okay, look, if you mess with us like this, we're going to mess with the Hong Kong economy. And this is a, one of the most important financial centers in the world. If flights aren't getting in and out, if there's kind of perceived chaos in the streets, it's going to have an impact on the Hong Kong economy. They're willing to take that risk to send a message to China that, you know, we don't want to live under your thumb. So I think this is going to continue to be a, a real flashpoint, and the Chinese are clearly pivoting in the direction of zero tolerance here. Yeah, man, one to watch. Let's stay in Asia for a minute. Things have gotten very bad. You flagged the story for me uh, between Japan and South Korea. Japan apparently was so pissed off that they threatened to stop exporting certain materials that are key to South Korean manufacturing. A bunch of protesters took to their streets in response in Seoul. South Korea apparently threatened to withdraw from an intelligence sharing agreement that allows us to monitor North Korea with the Japanese and with the ROCs. This is all coming as North Korea is just repeatedly firing <laughs> yeah, missiles yeah, 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 into yeah. the ocean and while building Trump, new nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah, while Trump like literally pretends everything is fine and yeah. tweets about his good friend in North Korea. When asked if Trump would mediate between Japan and South Korea, he said that no, it would be a full time job. So I guess he wants to keep like tweeting at the TV. Yeah. So anyway, this is an old dispute. It dates back to World War II and bubbles up periodically. Can you just like give us a quick overview of that history and what's yeah. happening here? So you know the Japanese were longtime colonizers of the Korean Peninsula. Then in World War II, they committed a series of atrocities against Koreans. Most emotionally for the Republic of Korea, thousands of Korean women, so-called comfort women, were essentially enlisted into sexual slavery by the Japanese. You can see why this is a searing wound for the Korean people. And there, over the decades, been a series of efforts to kind of mediate this history, to have the Japanese pay compensation uh, for these women, to have the Japanese apologize for this history. But it flares up occasionally. It flared up under Obama in a very serious way, in part because some of the last of these comfort women are, are dying. So we brokered an agreement between Japan and South Korea in 2015 that involved, you know, a mix of, of Japanese expression of apology and regret, also involved things like, you know, building monuments to the comfort women, you know, setting up foundations that deal with commemorating this issue, and essentially we're able to get them back to working together. I should add, the reason this is important is those are our two closest allies mm-hmm. in Northeast Asia. And if you're dealing with North Korea as a united front, the three of us, we all share intelligence, our militaries all cooperate, you're in a much stronger position. If we're all split, if Japan and South Korea aren't working together and the U.S. is isolated from them, that's a giant opening for the Chinese and the North Koreans to take advantage of while we're over here fighting. The North Koreans are basically what's happening. Yeah, what's happening. Is, is what the risk is, which is North Koreans are building nuclear weapons. They're firing off missiles. The Chinese are, are essentially trying to make up for the breakdown in Japan-Republic of Korea relations by moving in as a trading partner. And over time, the alliance falls apart. China gains influence, the North Koreans are emboldened, right? That's the risk. Now, what's happened is Japan has a pretty nationalist government under Shinzo Abe, and members of his party have essentially made inflammatory statements at times or, you know, have not kind of sufficiently been willing to atone for the past. There are textbooks in Japan that suggest that it's an open question as to whether 
the Japanese forced these comfort women into sexual slavery or not. Mm-hmm. The Koreans respond to that by complaining, by you know, threatening to stop buying certain products. And what's needed is the U.S. to play a really aggressive mediation role and to keep them talking to each other. Trump clearly doesn't want to do that. Mike Pompeo, clearly despite his quote-unquote swagger, Mm -hmm. has been unable to do that. They basically insulted Pompeo by saying they weren't going to have this meeting with the three of them and try to reach an agreement. So the U.S. looks weak in Asia, and our allies are fighting with each other. And if it leads to the South Koreans suspending this intelligence relationship, that's a direct problem for our national security because— intelligence sharing on North Korean threats is essential. You know, what what are they up to? What is their military doing? What are these missiles doing? When there is a, a North Korean launch or test, the way in which we know what happened is usually because lots of information is shared among the three of us. So this will have real national security implications. Yeah. And we got 28,500 uh, U.S. service members sitting in Korea and a whole bunch more in Japan. So yeah, hopefully Pompeo can find a way to and help it's a, us out. It's a sign that this nationalism, the Trump represents is infecting everybody, you know, because the Koreans and the Japanese are acting in a very nationalist way. You know, we're fighting about history, not looking forward. I think it's, you know, yet another consequence of this nationalist trend we see everywhere. Yes. Uh, And we'll have a little more of that later when we talk about Kashmir. Um, Do a couple of personnel updates. So in a win for common sense, uh, Trump's pick for director of national intelligence, Congressman John Ratcliffe, withdrew. It became clear that he had lied on his resume about like any relevant national security experience he might have had before getting to Congress. And then he has essentially no interest in the intelligence committee's work. He didn't go to the reading room to look at intelligence. He didn't go on trips. He did nothing. So great pick. Let's hope this one doesn't sit vacant for too long. The Senate did confirm Kelly Knight Craft to be Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. She actually got five yes votes from Democrats. Mystified. It's mystified. But the way she got it was she finally had to state that humans contribute to global climate change. Yeah. So that's a brave stand. Which she obviously doesn't believe. I, know. I mean, people should know that this is the wife of like a coal magnate. Yep. Uh, so her, that, her primary qualification to be ambassador to Canada, which was before, is she's married to a rich coal guy. Yeah. And she gave an interview in Canada and saying that there are two sides to climate science, right? This, to quote Trump, like, we're not sending our best here. You <laughs> no. know? Yeah, that shit does not fly in Canada. I mean, just a reminder that Nikki Haley was confirmed 96 to 4. So, like, bipartisan votes can't exist if you put up a qualified nominee. Yes, like someone who believes in climate change. Yeah. So the, the last person Trump had put up for this position, uh, Heather Nauert, former Fox News host, becomes... A Obviously. State Department spokesperson. She washed out over vetting concerns. What you mentioned, how Kraft was ambassador to Canada. She was criticized for spending seven months out of two years at her homes in the U.S. So apparently, she wasn't the best ambassador. It's an important position. Yeah, she shouldn't have been confirmed. It's hard for me to muster the outrage because I'm just generally out of it. But damn it, this sucks. Yeah, I mean, the U.N. ambassador is often like the first form of response to something happening around the world. Like there's a a Russian invasion of Crimea, or there's a crisis in the Middle East, or there's a North Korean nuclear test, and all attention turns to the UN and the UN Security Council. And the first person giving the view of the United States is your UN ambassador, the person who has to literally mobilize the world behind, say, like a sanctions regime uh, through the UN Security Council is this person. What is her qualification to do that? Like, like, uh, I mean, this is absolutely insane. Like, the, we care so little about the rest of the world. We care so little about the United Nations that the wife of some Trump donor 
who doesn't believe in climate change, who couldn't even like Canada is not a hardship post where no. you have to be home seven months <laughs> out of two years. Like it's also right across the border. <laughs> you right? can hang out like, in Canada. It's you know you can hang out in Canada. Like it's it's not like that. Montreal's nice. It's not a tough place to be, right? And this, what kind of message does this send to the world? It's a middle finger. That this is the person we think should represent, sit behind a placard that says United States of America and represent our country. Some big big names have been in those in that seat. Let's see. Uh, George H. W. Bush. <laughs> so the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Adelaide Stevenson convincing the world that the Russians had moved nuclear missiles to Cuba, George H.W. Bush, Susan Rice and Samantha Power under us, you know, Richard Holbrook, uh, you know, you, John Bolton, unfortunately, yeah, under sadly. You know, Bush one, I mean, some, some, Bush two. Some good ones, a couple, yeah, couple c- bad apples. A couple clunkers in there, you know. <laughs> it's also uh, just worth flagging that John Huntsman has resigned his post as U.S. ambassador to Russia. He's going to run for governor of Utah. I know that some people like Huntsman, they think he's moderate. They think they wish the Republican Party were more like him. To be honest, I just see a guy who is like so nakedly full of ambition that he'll work for Trump, he'll work for Obama, he'll do whatever. He's just kind of a hack. So in 2009, Huntsman was our ambassador in Beijing for Mm -hmm. Obama. And we were there and I was, it was in a room, it was just me and Huntsman and Obama and David Axelrod. Uh, I don't even remember why that group of people was talking to each we other. We did it on a weird, like, Saturday yeah. announcement or something. And, too, yeah. and Huntsman was talking about the healthcare debate. And he said, you know, I don't know what's happened to the Republican Party. You know, in 2009, right, this pre, like, kind of losing its mind. And, you know, in private, I think the reason why, like, a lot of people say nice things about John Huntsman is in private. He's like, yeah, the Republican Party has gone off the rails. He was saying that to us back in 2009. And yet he agreed to serve as... Trump's ambassador in Moscow at a mm-hmm. time when Trump is doing the Helsinki summit, cozying up to Putin. Trump is running down our intelligence community. Trump is kind of doing nothing to stand up to Russian aggression. You know, he's consistently kind of compromised what people surmise he thinks about things yeah. uh, to be in these jobs. And, you know, now history will record that he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia when the American presence stood in Helsinki and essentially agreed with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence community. That was a fun day. Yeah. Good legacy. Yeah. Congrats, John. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. 
Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. couple Afghanistan updates. So last week we talked about how Trump told Mike Pompeo that he wants to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by the election, not all of them, but a big chunk. So like clockwork here, Lindsey Graham went to the press to lobby Trump to <laughs> keep them there. So not surprising. But there were two articles that I read recently, two recent data points that I wanted to flag that make a national security argument for why I think we should probably get out. The first is a UN report that says Afghan security forces and coalition forces have killed more civilians in Afghanistan than the Taliban. So the UN says that in the first six months of this year, 1,400 civilians have been killed and 2,400 wounded. They believe that Afghan and, and allied coalition forces are responsible for 52% of those civilian deaths. So I obviously can't verify those numbers. I'm not pointing the blame at U.S. service members here, but it's impossible to win hearts and minds if that data is accurate, um, if we're more of a threat to the people who live in the country than the Taliban. The second report was the Times reported that there's a split between the military and the intel community over whether ISIS forces in Afghanistan threaten the West or not. So apparently the military thinks that ISIS in Afghanistan could inspire or direct attacks against Western countries. The intel guys believe that they are more likely to fight the Taliban than us. They're waging an internal war in Afghanistan. So I guess like you see these two, you know, data points and it's a best debatable whether there's a threat to the US homeland emanating from Afghanistan anymore. The suffering for the Afghan people is unimaginable. I mean, like even if you try to set aside the politics, the history, like we were just deciding this blank slate, it's hard for me to really think of a good argument for staying except that people think we need to prop up the government. Well, look, the tragedy, too, is that this country has been basically at war since, like, the 80s yeah, when the yeah. Soviets were fighting down there. Can you imagine your whole life? No. Uh, and, you know, I think that the civilian casualty number is an indictment of the Trump policy in the sense that at the end of the Obama administration, we had drawn down to 10,000 troops, but we'd also significantly scale back the kind of support. We weren't doing air support for offensives by the Afghan security forces. We were trying to kind of restrain elements of the Afghan security forces in some of the offensives that they did. When Trump made his policy change, he, he essentially, you know, we're taking the gloves off. Like, we're going to be back in the business of providing air support. We're going to have troops back in combat. It's not the fault of the troops. It's the directives that are being given and the rules of engagement. If you start dropping more bombs on the country, you're going to kill more civilians. Yeah. If you are supporting and encouraging the ANSF to go on more offensives, they're going to kill more civilians. And to what end? Because you cannot win this war militarily. Like, the Taliban is not going to be defeated on the battlefield. If that's not clear, 
after 20 years? Like, wh- wh- how much longer do we yeah. need to wait before we have that evidence? And better to, to wind down the fighting, try to end this violence, and, and try to play a diplomatic role to encourage these sides to essentially come to some power-sharing agreement. The ISIS thing, like, of course, like, this is the justification. Like, well, if we don't leave here, maybe there'll be a threat from here. Mm-hmm. That's a recipe for never leaving right. and continuing to pulverize this country that has already had decades of war. And again, it's not an indictment of our troops. It's the policy that is being given to them to carry out. And the fact is, if we leave and there's an ISIS safe haven that emerges, we could fire a missile at it. You know, we could treat it as we do... ISIS safe havens in other places. You don't need to be fighting a war in the country with fifteen to 20,000 U.S. troops in order to take a shot at an ISIS safe haven. So even if there is a threat, like the idea that we need to be permanently fighting in this war that is not working, that is killing civilians, that is not eliminating the Taliban, because maybe if we aren't fighting that war, someday there could be an ISIS safe haven— is is an insane rationale. Yeah. I mean, the reason I led with that Lindsey Graham anecdote is not just because I love slapping him around, and I do. I think he's a total bozo. But that conventional wisdom, you hear it from Lindsey Graham. I heard it from Ash Carter when he was sitting in that chair, Obama's Secretary of Defense, which is basically the argument that if we just show enough resolve and stick-to-itiveness and, and wait out the bad guys, that we'll eventually get to a better place and negotiate a better solution, and it will lead to a more uh, peaceful outcome for the Afghan people. I just think that 19 years have shown that that logic is faulty and that it's time to try something else. If you are a 25-year-old fighting in the Taliban, you've been fighting your entire life. The idea that if the U.S. shows resolve through the form of Lindsey Graham on a Sunday talk show halfway around the world and more bombs being dropped on your country, which is part of the reason why you're fighting in the first place, like that's just a willful ignorance of what we've learned over the last 20 years. The Taliban lives in these places. These are tribal connections in certain places in Afghanistan. It's just, it's just the reality of the makeup of that country. It doesn't mean the Taliban don't do horrific things. They do. It just means that unless the United States is willing to put in like 500,000 troops to pacify the entire country, we're not going to defeat them with 15 or 20,000 U.S. troops in perpetuity. We've, we've learned that. Yeah. Let's stay in the region and talk about Kashmir. We've talked about it a few times on the show. It's a potential nuclear flashpoint between India and Pakistan with a long fraught history. On Monday, the Indian government made a major move and they revoked Kashmir's special status and limited its autonomy. Um, Ben, can you give us like the quick and dirty on what that means or the significance? It's a good nerding out day. Yeah, Um, it's fun. So essentially, uh, Kashmir is the only region in India that has a Muslim majority in the province, right? And the Indian constitution and Indian governance has always provided a certain degree of autonomy for that region. So it's a part of India, uh, at least India views it that way. Uh, Pakistan sees it as contested. Uh, but there's been this degree of autonomy there. What the Indian government did is essentially eliminate that and restore kind of direct federal authority and responsibility for governance, which is hugely inflammatory in Kashmir mm-hmm. because people don't like this. It will create openings for extremists and Pakistanis and, frankly, just ordinary people who resent this. And it could lead to more violence in the form of terrorist attacks in Kashmir or, 
you know, provocations emanating from Pakistan. So it's a pretty aggressive move. And I think what it shows is two things. This Hindu nationalist government under Narendra Modi that just got reelected is feeling emboldened and feeling like they can blow through previous lines that weren't crossed. The second thing it shows, we sat here like two weeks ago, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know, after putting the Pakistani prime minister on the people mover at Dulles, has this crazy press spray in the Oval Office where he indicates he's going to mediate the dispute. Yeah, how'd that go? Within weeks of doing that, the Indians essentially say, not only are you not going to mediate this dispute, we're going to get ahead of you and restore direct control here. This is a gigantic embarrassment to the President of the United States. And nobody will talk about it because everybody's focused on the fact that he's a racist white nationalist, understandably. But my God, what a failure. Yeah. You know? Like literally within weeks of the guy hosting the Pakistani prime minister and saying he's going to insert himself into this, the Indians essentially insert themselves into it and say, we're going to do one of the most provocative things that we can do. You know, yet again, is random comments and sprays that seem like they don't have consequences. Well, look at the outcome of of, of what he's done. Yeah. And this, I don't, if the Intel community somehow missed this, we got problems because the Indian government moved 35,000 additional troops into Kashmir last week. Tourists were evacuated. As you know, they cut off internet service, I think, for a period of time. Yes. Kashmir officials, as you said, condemned the move. As did Indian politicians who opposed Modi. The Pakistanis are furious. Yeah. Um, Imran Khan said, quote, I fear they may initiate ethnic cleansing in Kashmir to wipe out the local population. I mean, that's a big deal. But I mean, I, you know, you sort of alluded to this earlier about this nationalist spread from China, Japan, uh, India. I mean, in your opinion, how does this compare to the Chinese government cracking down in Hong Kong or the Russians annexing Crimea? I mean, how should the U.S. respond to something like this? It's a great question. I mean, I think what you see is, look, the, uh, another analogy is the Chinese government having a million Uyghurs in detention in Western mm-hmm. China. Big powers, China, Russia, the United States, India, the big powers, clearly feel like there's no reason to abide by traditional international norms or standards. There are UN Security Council resolutions about Kashmir and how this should be dealt with that mm-hmm. India is ignoring, for instance, in this case. And, you know, we hear a lot about norms, international law. It seems like this kind of, you know, inconvenience or this thing that a bunch of weenie lawyers at the UN talk about until you need it, right? right? And I think what you're seeing is when countries feel like it's the law of the jungle and international law or national norms don't matter anymore, like you get pretty unstable outcomes. And the first people to suffer are ethnic minorities, right? Because if you're sitting in Kashmir and you're a Muslim citizen of that state and you see 35,000 Indian yeah. troops coming in and direct role, you're freaked out. I'm vulnerable. I, maybe I'll end up like the Uyghurs in China or maybe you know I'll end up like the, the Muslim Tartars in Crimea who the Russians have suppressed, right? But ultimately, these things can lead to actual wars, too, yeah. right? Because, you know, wars are usually fought over territorial flashpoints. And the more we're creating these, you know, with the Indians and the Pakistanis in Kashmir, uh, with obviously the Russians going into Crimea, with the Chinese and potentially Taiwan and Hong Kong, like this is you know, one of these flashpoints will actually catch fire, right? Yeah, man. It's a scary one. Um, and it's why the U.S. needs to be for <laughs> an international system of laws and norms and consequences for countries that violate those laws and norms. Like, because if we just toss out the rule book, you know, everybody's going to break the rules. And that's what's happening under Trump. Yeah. Be good to have strong diplomats too. Two things, I guess, are more in the just sort of update category. So on Tuesday, the Trump administration put in place a total economic embargo on Venezuela. So that means they're freezing all government assets. They're prohibiting any transactions with Venezuela. 
the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, he's in Peru today, Tuesday, and is going to give a speech where he justifies the move by talking about how previous embargoes on Panama and Nicaragua were effective. Cuba, uh, yeah, not, that, not effective. That one's going real well. Uh, what, what year are we on? Yeah, <laughs> 60s. Six, sixth decade. So the Wall Street Journal pointed out that in July, the International Monetary Fund predicted a 35% economic contraction for Venezuela this year. So that means we are like hammering and crushing an economy that had basically already collapsed. So again, I mean, this is a question that you raised earlier about a couple issues, frankly. It was like, what's the end game? Like, I know they want Maduro to go. They are crushing the Venezuelan economy and not really incentivizing them to leave or seemingly having any of the talks we need to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you know is this will hurt more Venezuelans. They will suffer more. What it feels like to me is Trump was frustrated. Bolton was frustrated. Remember John Bolton taping videos declaring that Maduro was about to leave. Mm -hmm. Mike Pompeo putting out that Maduro had a plane on the tarmac and was going to get on it. Well, here we are weeks, if not months later, and that hasn't happened. Step back. China trade war getting worse. North Korea building more nuclear weapons and firing off missiles. Iran preparing to restart its stockpile of enriched uranium. Maduro still there. None of these planes are landing, no. you know. And there's no fucking aircraft controller, you know, uh, to try to you know detangle what what all these different crises. And this is really frightening stuff because the bottom is kind of falling out of the Trump foreign policy in all these really different is. places, you know. And and where where is this going? There's no sense of like all they know how to do is is the next. You know, pressure point. And we don't like, you know, how China respond to our terrorists. So we'll label them a currency manipulator. Nothing will come of that. We, we don't like that Maduro hasn't left yet. So total embargo. Well, the Venezuelan people will suffer and I don't see Maduro leaving right now. And so they're just firing bullets and emptying the chamber without any real strategy to get from A to B. They're also just flailing. Yeah. I mean, the foreign policy the grand strategy is unclear, and then the tactics in the near term are silly. So let's take an example. Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, was invited to the meeting with Trump in the Oval Office two weeks ago. Then the administration, when he said no, decided to sanction him. So they invited the guy to talk, the guy who would negotiate a diplomatic solution, and then they sanctioned him. So meanwhile, Iran is still seizing tankers in the Strait of Hormuz, Meanwhile, like Chinese companies are finding ways to smuggle fuel out of Iran. The international community is totally divided on the response. So again, this is more an update than it is a question or anything else. But it does feel like the bottom is falling out a little bit on some of these policy choices. Well, Iran's a great example. And you just gave the (laughs) they they say they want a deal. And they're so eager for one that they're doing something that we never did, inviting the foreign minister to an Oval Office meeting. And then when that doesn't happen for pretty obvious reasons, because if you're Zarif, like you can't go meet with the president who's just thrown all these sanctions at you, hurled all these insults at you, almost bombed your country, you know, without getting on a limb that gets sawed off. Because yeah. the hardliners back home are going to be like, you know, what are you doing and having that meeting when all we've gotten from the Trump people are threats and sanctions. Instead of trying to figure out how to, to build up to that kind of, kind of meeting, right? diplomacy, hard work, multiple meetings at a lower level before you get in the room. They just say, okay, we're going to throw sanctions on this guy. I saw some reports that said that they wanted to, you know, fire another bullet of the sanctions, you know, because it would make, you know, APAC happy, you know, they welcomed it, Netanyahu, the Saudis showing that we're being tough to all this collection of friends that Trump has. But like in practice, you just slam the door in your own face for the diplomacy you want to get. So there's there's this kind of incoherence 
And the only thing they know how to do is escalate. And again, the thing that worries me really is like you keep escalating in all these different places. Like well, the China thing could lead to a global recession. The Iran thing could lead to a war. The Venezuela thing is going to hurt a lot of people. Like the escalation has a cost. Yeah, not great in Iran. Speaking of arms control, Ben. Yeah. So, okay, this is a story that I think should be getting a lot of attention, but just isn't. So I wanted to raise it today. Previously, you've talked about how John Bolton hates arms control, and they are just systematically walking away from a whole bunch of arms control agreements with the Russians that were set up, you know, they used to be bipartisan that Reagan was a champion of, and, you know, suddenly we're in a very different place. So we pulled out of a treaty called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Force or INF Treaty with Russia. In fairness, we did so in part because they were violating that treaty, but that doesn't mean you abandon the whole thing. Yeah. You could try to amend it. But now the U.S. is developing new weapons, which apparently is pissing off the Chinese, who announced overnight that they will not, quote, stand idly by and be forced to take countermeasures if the U.S. deploys intermediate range ground missiles in Asia. So there's some consequences that they probably didn't anticipate. Then there's the New START Treaty. This treaty that Obama negotiated uh, reduces the number of nuclear weapons that are deployed by the U.S. and Russia. It expires in 2021. And the Trump administration is apparently not sure that they want to renegotiate it because, you know, Bolton says... It's another Obama deal that's bad, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, no, look, the thing had to go through the Senate and got 71 votes. So again, it's just an issue that in normal times, I think would be front page news, would be on TV, would be getting talked about because at the end of the day, the number of nuclear weapons that are on you know red alert in a plane or in a bunker somewhere is a big existential deal. But we're just distracted from all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, after World War II, the thing that the world decided you needed agreements for the most were try to limit the spread of nuclear weapons because the more people have nuclear weapons and the more nuclear weapons there are, the greater risk that they get used. And at the end of the Cold War, there's this opportunity to roll back the threat of nuclear weapons, and a lot of agreements were reached, and agreements like the INF Treaty were fundamental to the global kind of nonproliferation arms control regime. And... You know, by kind of systematically taking apart the global nonproliferation regime and arms control regime, they're just green lighting the Russians to build new nuclear weapons, the Chinese to build new nuclear weapons. We know the North Koreans are building new nuclear weapons. Trump doesn't seem to care about that as long as he gets nice letters from Kim. This is going to make the world more dangerous. And, and the things we've talked about come together because think about some of the situations we've discussed. The Indians and Pakistanis have nuclear weapons, right? The, the Chinese have nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. The more there's this kind of mixture of a lack of agreements and treaties to regulate and limit nuclear weapons, combined with escalation in different areas, like the unthinkable could happen at some point, right? And so I think this idea of how do you reinvigorate and reinvest in arms control agreements and reduce the spread of nuclear weapons and limit the use of nuclear weapons and, and, and deployment of nuclear weapons has to be a part of the foreign policy for all these Democratic candidates. I'll, I'll try to find the silver lining here, in, in, Tommy, which is that, yes, Trump is kind of taking a, an eraser to the world, you know, to, to the agreements and institutions and practices that have kind of governed how the world operates. We've talked a lot about the downside. I think the opportunity for a Democrat is to say, like, here's my vision for how to restore this and build it back better. You know, mm-hmm. like, what is an updated 2.0 version of all of these arms control agreements look like? And yes, it'll be hard to get the Russians into that, but at least put forward that vision. Start talking to the Chinese about this. Um, how do we strengthen the international system to better deal with some of the flashpoints that we've talked about? You know, the Iran nuclear agreement was meant to be 
a starting point for that type of effort, obviously, in limiting Iran having a nuclear weapon, but also having a diplomatic channel open with the Iranians. And so I, I think that, that candidates should be thinking big about, okay, Trump has essentially broken apart this international system. What should it look like in 2021? And I think that's a really important debate to be had. Frankly, it would involve moderators in democratic debates actually asking questions about foreign policy. Yeah. How'd you feel about that, yeah, by the way? Yeah. Well, you know, because this, all this stuff is happening around the world. And, you know, I get that it's not as fundamental as healthcare, but any one of these things could become, you know, we could have a flood of people from Venezuela coming here. We could have yeah. a war breaking out somewhere. We could have tensions in Kashmir. I, I think where these candidates are going to have the most power as president is in foreign policy. And so that we should hear from them on it. It's also just a good way... I mean, these questions are not what candidates hear every day on the stump. So yeah. it's a good way to figure out who's been briefed, who's doing some reading. Because remember when Trump was asked by Hugh Hewitt, of all people, now a Trump lackey, but then someone who was seen as a reasonable journalist, what the nuclear triad is. And then yeah. that's the, the three different ways that the United States has to deploy nuclear weapons. Ash Carter, big supporter of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, is. he clearly didn't know what the nuclear triad was. And I think it exposed him as someone who was totally unqualified for the job. Now, that didn't prevent him from getting elected. We all saw that. But I mean, I think, you know, the exchange between Steve Bullock and uh, Elizabeth Warren at the debate showed that she's really been thinking a lot about, you know, nuclear weapons and nonproliferation in her campaign and has put forward agenda. And he didn't seem to have the greatest handle on uh, the concept or the policy. Yeah. And look, these are issues that matter in people's lives. I I remember talking to Stacey Abrams about this. And she said, yeah, I got foreign policy in Georgia. Like, I got farmers who are suffering because of this trade war, you know? Mm-hmm. I've got guns on the streets that are a national security issue, you know? Um, we've got the risk of conflict that, the United, you know, we've talked about Afghanistan. Like, we got troops fighting over there. We spent trillions of dollars there. Like, this stuff matters to your pocketbook, to your security, uh, to the economic context that you're in. And we need to hear the vision from these candidates about where they want to lead, not just the United States, but but the world. And we need some woke worldos out there <laughs> You know, woke on arms control here, yeah. not just on Go to <laughs> events, because ask questions. yeah, because essentially, like uh, people out there care, like people listening to this podcast care, and and I, you know, politicians will be responsive to that. And you're right; it reveals something about your kind of basic knowledge and preparedness for the job if you're able to talk about this and put forward a vision for how to deal with this. And it's connected to the democracy piece. If we're not getting our democracy in order at home, how can we advocate for these things abroad, right? So all these pieces kind of fit together in the vision that you want from a presidential candidate. Yeah, agreed. Okay, most important issue of the day. Page six reported on rumors that Lindsay Lohan, yes, that Lindsay Lohan is friends with or maybe romantically linked to friend of the pod, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. <laughs> Freaky Friday, indeed. Uh, their reps denied that this is happening. There's a report that he gave her a gift-wrapped credit card. I assume that'd be on the kingdom. He's flying around his jets. Some people were surprised by this pairing. I would <laughs> argue that they might be perfect together. Was Britney Spears not available? I, this um, is just the weirdest. Story. Like Of yeah. all the people to be friends, these two bozos. Yeah, I think there's just an international jet set community of rich and famous I didn't know Lindsay Lohan was part out. of that international jet set community. Yeah, um, that's a fair point. Well, or maybe it's a sign like, you know, a few months ago or maybe a little over a year, like before Jamal Khashoggi, like Mohammed Salman was over here in California hanging out with like The Rock. Yep. And now he's with Lindsay Lohan, right? So maybe 
well, maybe yeah. there's been a bit of a you know diminution in his star power. There are right? some questions about sequencing. Maybe they were friends. Maybe these reports or whispers are from before the Khashoggi incident. So you never know. But you're right. Mohammed bin Salman was the great reformer taking the United States by storm, hanging out with Jeff Bezos, hanging out with Tom Friedman, hanging out with actors in Hollywood and agents and screenwriters. And now we're in a very different place. It does speak to the fact that like there used to be, at least outwardly, this effort to demonstrate kind of sobriety and piety among leaders in countries like Saudi Arabia. I mean, it is kind of interesting. Like, Mohammed Salman's whole MO, right, is kind of impunity. I can do whatever I want. Yep. I can chop up a journalist in another country. I can hang out on yachts with Jared Kushner. And now it's like, yeah, I, I can date Lindsay Lohan because I, you know, or maybe not. I just hang out with her. I don't know what they're doing. But, like— uh, well, At least give a bunch of money to someone yeah, that would it, probably not be seen as— uh, Acceptable to it's the like the first Saudi, lady. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's kind of there's something interesting there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, some weirdness. Um, and uh, you know, we are living in kind of like these bizarre times where, like, if you look at these different leaders, right? You got Trump, Stormy Daniels, and the sexual assault, and you've got Bolsonaro, and you know, his kid is like, you know, in all these corruption schemes. There's this, there's this kind of sense of like impunity. I can do whatever I want. I can hang out with whoever I want. I can enrich myself in any way I want in lots of places. And I think my hope is, you know, that there's kind of backlash to that globally, that like the anger that had previously been directed at kind of amorphous political elites, like, no, like, look at what these leaders are doing. Look mm-hmm. at the choices they're making and, and their policies and their lives. <laughs> like, let's like maybe mobilize here and try to get the type of leadership that's more responsive. Yeah, agreed. I'm not sure how I got from Lindsay Lohan to that. You know but, what? Uh, I followed you. Yeah. I went on that journey with yeah. you. When we come back, I'll talk with Nick Rasmussen, who is the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center from 2014 to 2017. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. I am honored to have on the line right now a friend of the pod, my friend, Nick Resmussen. Nick was the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center under President Obama. He also worked in counterterrorism jobs for President Bush. He's one of those nonpartisan national security officials uh, that I loved working with back in the White House days. So, Nick, thank you for joining the pod again. It's been too long. Thank you. And you left out the part where I, I served for a year into the Trump administration as well, which, oh my of course, God. was... Uh, uh, a change in atmosphere, you might say, from uh, sorry, I memory hold that from my time in previous administrations. Yeah, I don't know how I memory hold that. You're like the one guy that sort of 
hung on for a year. Well, me and Brett McGurk. Yeah, you and poor, so. poor Brett. Well, anyway, well, thank you again. Uh, it's been an awful week because of these domestic terrorists. So, you know, like I said earlier, you know, you work for Bush, you work for Obama on their counterterrorism teams. You and I spent a lot of time in Situation Room meetings or in your office talking about the threat from Al Qaeda, the threat from Hezbollah, the Taliban, uh, yep, you know, sure. sort of Islamic terrorist groups. How concerned were you and other counterterrorism officials about right-wing extremism or the kind of domestic terrorism like we saw in El Paso? Well, you know, it was always a feature of the landscape here inside the United States, and so it wasn't as if those problems didn't exist, and it's not as if what happened in El Paso this past week, you know, had not happened in America before. But, of course, for most of the post-9-11 period, as, as your question suggests, Tommy, the focus really was on that overseas or international um, dimension of the terrorism problem. Mm-hmm. And even when we did think about it in terms of the, of the domestic terrorism set of problems, we tended to kind of, um, whenever they did crop up, everybody just turned you know, their heads to the right, looked at the FBI and said, over to you. Right. Um, because this was something that was kind of squarely within the FBI's domain to cover. My organization that you mentioned, the National Counterterrorism Center, actually, you know, our reading of the statute that created NCTC after 9-11 um, was that we should be focusing on international terrorism, not on domestic terrorism, because that was, again, the FBI. And, and again, I think the FBI is you know, the preeminent law enforcement organization in the world. There's kind of nobody better at doing what they do than FBI. But when you think about it now at the size and scale of the problem we're facing, the idea that we would kind of turn and expect them to deal with it on their own as solely a law enforcement matter, that seems, you know, oddly out of step with kind of the way we should be approaching it. Um, And certainly not the way, as you know, that we approach the international terrorism problem. Because as you know, from all those sit-room meetings, you know, we were relying on every tool of national power. You know, right. Every agency and department was around the table when we were trying to figure out what to do with al-Qaeda or ISIS. And that's just not the way it's been approached with this domestic terrorism problem set. Yes, that's right. And so, you know, when you were on the NSC, the Bush administration, I think, commissioned a report from DHS on the rise of some of this far-right violence and extremism in the United States. And then that report was actually released by the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. And I am embarrassed when I think about the fact that we ended up sort of backpedaling and walking away from that report because it got politicized and there were all these attacks from Republicans. And, you know, I also remember one of the primary things we used to hear back in the day was if Democrats would just say radical Islamic terrorism, you know, that you needed to state what the problem was clearly and uh, those magic (laughs) words would make the threat go away. But I, I wonder if in hindsight that contributed to a you know, sort of collective blind spot about this very real bubbling right-wing threat? I think it might have. And again, the other challenge with dealing with this particular part of the terrorism threat is that we have a strong First Amendment tradition that allows for the full range of kinds of speech in, in our political debate, including speech that is hateful, including speech that is offensive, mm-hmm. including speech that the vast majority of us find you know, odious and you know, whatever adjective you can think of. But so long as it, that speech um, stops short of violence or advocating violence or encouraging violence, then it's deemed acceptable in, in our political life. And so the challenge of dealing with domestic terrorism here is how do you get at the underlying ideology 
this, whether it's white supremacy, anti-Semitism, some other hate-based ideology, how do you get at that ideology without treading on our First Amendment traditions? And it was, in a sense, easier, and I hate to say it that way, but easier to deal with the ISIS problem or the, or the Al-Qaeda problem in this context, because yeah. if you were speaking out on behalf of one of those groups, you were almost, by, by virtue of that very speech, guilty of a crime of providing material support to a designated terrorist organization. So that's just a, the, the way we've divided the problem set into international and domestic has just made it harder for us to deal with the domestic side of this terrorism problem. Yeah. I mean, when I think back to a lot of those counterterrorism meetings we had, um, there was discussion of intercepting communications between al-Qaeda leaders. For example, you could monitor travel of individuals into Afghanistan or Syria and figure out if someone's going to a training camp. I mean, you could take exactly. out bad guys abroad before they got to the U.S., None of those tools are really available here. <laughs> well, and the very fact that somebody decided to try to travel to Syria via, you know, Turkey or something like that, that put them in, in violation of federal law, and the FBI could, you know, build a case against them for material support to an, a designated terrorist group like ISIS. So even before some violent act was undertaken, there were tools the government had to be able to disrupt or, or um, mitigate this potential terrorist threat tied to ISIS or al-Qaeda. And those same tools just don't translate into the domestic environment in the same way. Yeah. And in fact, it's even worse, right? Because the nightmare scenario we always had was some sort of Al-Qaeda sleeper cell or someone living in the U.S. who started watching Anwar Alaki on YouTube and got radicalized online and then decided to do something terrible without communicating about it. I mean, isn't El Paso sort of what we feared from Islamic terrorists all along? It feels like the worst case in some ways. Well, and again, this is something that I think I took away from my experience at the National Counterterrorism Center was this process of radicalization where an individual um, latches on to a hate-based ideology, whether it's an al-Qaeda ideology or a white supremacist or anti-Semitic ideology. The process they go through to get there looks very much the same regardless of the of the flavor of ideology that you're talking about. And there's a period where they're, where they are consuming that ideology in an on, usually in an online environment with like-minded, you know, fellow travelers, but they can often just be dabbling or sampling or not necessarily looking to act on these, uh, on this ideology. But then there comes a point when they mobilize and they move into kind of a more action oriented phase. And it's because the you know, not to get all psychological on you, but, you know, the narrative that they've been consuming almost forces them to kind of look at things in existential terms. And right. Of course you see that with the El Paso perpetrator who talked about, you know, invasion. This was life or death stuff to him. And of course, all out of whack with reality. But again, in many ways, the psychological process that, that he went through was likely mirrors that which an al-Qaeda or ISIS-inspired um, extremist or terrorist might have gone through a few years ago and and still today. Yeah. And and just to be clear, that side of the problem set is still very much out there. You know, not too many weeks go by when you won't look somewhere in the United States and see that some U.S. attorney's office has brought federal charges against somebody for being connected to ISIS right. uh, or Al Qaeda. So right. It's not like that problem's gone away either. Yeah. So I mean, so let's talk about what we can do about it. I mean, I saw you signed a letter. Uh, with six former Bush, Obama, or Trump White House counterterrorism officials calling on uh, the current administration to take domestic terrorism more seriously. I guess my question is, what does that look like to you? Do we need new laws, more money? Like, how do you resource this? 
It's a great question because, again, I've kind of asked myself, okay, if you gave me, you know, $500 million, which in the grand scheme of, of national security spending is not a big sum, you know, certainly not compared to what we spend at the Pentagon or in the intelligence community, I'm not sure I would know what to do with it, you know, if you gave me, as I said, $500 million. But there are a couple of things I think that we can latch on to as immediately available steps. And one, several of our colleagues, Tommy, who worked in the Justice Department um, under both Republican and, and Democratic presidents, have brought forward the idea of trying to create a domestic terrorism statute, which would hmm. give the FBI more tools, more investigative reach, perhaps at an earlier stage. You may have heard FBI Director Ray recently talk about, uh, when he was doing testimony on the Hill, about the FBI doesn't want to get in the business of policing speech. They only get involved when there's violence. Well, that obviously sounds great, but it's also reactive. Like right. The FBI can't do things until something violent has happened. And that doesn't seem like an approach we want to be taking. And so domestic terrorism statute, um, according to my friends who you know, have much more of a legal background than I do, would allow us to be more aggressive investigatively at an earlier stage in dealing with domestic terrorists. So that's one category of things. Mm -hmm. Another category of things is very late in the Obama administration, under the leadership of, of Lisa Monaco and Jen Easterly at the White House, um, we ended up creating um, a countering violent extremism task force I mean, it was housed at the Department of Homeland Security, but it was basically made up of four agencies, personnel from four agencies, FBI, Homeland Security, the Justice Department, and some of my uh, staff at the National Counterterrorism Center. And the idea was pull together all the resources of the federal government to do some of this prevention work of countering extremism before bad things happen. And this was an incipient effort. It was probably, I would say, probably took us too long to get to this answer. I wish we'd thought of it in year two rather than year six or seven of the Obama administrations. But it was, I think, a, a great step forward because it, it brought everybody together who was a subject matter expert on this thing, on this problem set. And it kind of co-located expertise and resources, which, of course, is the way you get results. It was starting to have some traction, um, and then came the end of the administration. And, of course, the, the Trump administration, they didn't you know, slash and burn immediately and kind of dismantle the organization. But over the two, first couple years of the Trump administration, this particular component, this task force, has kind of been allowed to wither and re basically die. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is easily reversible and won't cost hundreds of millions of dollars. What we're talking about is tens of millions of dollars. Wow. And these are dollars that can be best spent in local communities through kind of grant programs that find organizations, find their way to organizations who are actually on the ground in places like Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, who are actually working to, to kind of devise intervention programs when some individual is identified as being at risk of becoming this kind of extremist, whether it's an Islamic extremist or a white supremacist extremist, getting you know, resources in the hands of people who can do something about it and not having, a, as I said earlier, be simply an FBI problem, because that's usually the too late part of the story. Yeah. Um, if you get to the point where FBI is on the case, that means laws have been broken. Yeah. Those quotes uh, about when they're able to jump in, I mean, I, I understand where Christopher Ray and others are coming from, but it, it certainly doesn't uh, make me feel better. <laughs> and if you think about it, kind of the analogy is to what we talked about on the international terrorism side, Tommy, was mm -hmm. the kind of soft power tools we were trying to use overseas to dry up sources of extremism. And you remember how hard that work was and how impossible it was to measure whether you were being successful or not. Yes. Places like Yemen or Somalia or, you know, 
Afghanistan for all those years. So you can imagine when you try to use these tools in the United States, it's not without controversy because sometimes these these prevention or counter-extremism programs are viewed by some elements of the community as being hostile in and of themselves. Yes. This is the federal government in Washington paying attention to my community solely for the purpose of gaining intelligence or because they suspect my community of being involved in, in something bad. So that makes it hard for the government to be effective in this area. And so that's why, even though I blame us and the Obama administration for not making as much progress as we would have liked, it was hard work, and it was hard to kind of demonstrate a return on the investment for these programs. How do you d- demonstrate that you've diverted X number of people from becoming terrorists? Right. You know, it doesn't... And as a result, the Congress sometimes wasn't willing to step up and fund these kinds of programs at DHS, at Homeland Security, as part of this task force, because, again, they wanted to know, well, if we give you $10 million, what can you tell us about the return on that investment? Yeah, yeah. We might not be able to tell you anything about return on investment, or maybe not for years. So I don't want to make it sound like there's an easy solution either, but clearly the Trump administration could turn back in the direction of trying to support these prevention programs, um, which, again, are much more analogous to soft power tools than they are to, you know, traditional hard power tools. Yeah, you're right. That, you know, obviously, the government is the is the biggest and most important player in this. But there are, you know, broader issues about online radicalization and the spread of propaganda. And I, I just I've noticed that, you know, technology companies have done a pretty damn good job of getting ISIS propaganda off of the most prominent social media platforms. In general, we've done a terrible job, uh, collective we, of dealing with platforms like the Daily Stormer or 8chan that traffic in white nationalism and, and are hosted by fringier service providers and you know ISPs and whatnot that we just you know can't seem to pressure. Are there success stories from the effort to deal with ISIS propaganda online that are not being applied to this white nationalist propaganda? Is there a First Amendment issue or is it just is it different? Like, how, how should we understand this? It's a great question. I, you know, as hard as the task was for social media companies to deal with the, the former form of terrorism that you described, whether it was ISIS or Al Qaeda type propaganda or messaging, it's much more difficult for them, to, I think, to identify what is the appropriate line to be drawn when talking about something like a right-wing white supremacist ideology. Because, again, again, the First Amendment tradition obviously um, allows for you know, even noxious, odious, hateful expressions of political views um, in an open way. And so where, what exactly is the tipping point or the threshold at which you want companies to set to set their kind of, to train their algorithms, um, to point their algorithms at. So I don't want to make it sound like I feel sympathy for them, um, but there's certainly a bigger challenge in addressing this problem, a more complicated challenge for them in addressing this problem than there was on the kind of more pure um, international terrorism problem set. And you can also imagine that they're wary of ending up on the wrong side of of a political debate, or on any side yes. of a political debate, yes, if they are viewed somehow as taking sides with the left or the right. Um, and interestingly, there's also a strand of views um, in the civil liberties community that, that kind of looks at this and says, yes, if you do this against white supremacists today, you could just as easily turn those same authorities and tools and procedures against other forms of ideology at other times. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so today it is, is, it is the white supremacists that are the outliers. But what about you know, five years from now when some other administration turns the tables and we, the environmentalists, are deemed to be extremists, right. for example? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why these are, you know, as easy as it would seem to say, that's bad, get it off the Internet. Yeah. That's why it's complicated. Yeah, man, I got to tell you, like, I, I have a lot of sympathy for those kinds of arguments. I mean, I felt like I worked for a good president. I, I worked for a lot of uh, great bosses like yourself who were doing you know the best they could for the right reasons and I, I trusted them but then the trump administration takes over and i wonder every day what kinds of things they're asking uh their intelligence and national security teams to look at read or otherwise collect and it makes me a little bit nervous so yeah i do want us to have some rules and as you know messaging from the top is everything here and you know you can have the government with its programs working and pulling in the right direction but if the messaging from the top runs counter to that then you know, what is that, that audience of potential extremists really hearing? Mm-hmm. And again, even with the, with the president's statement yesterday, I mean, I was, of course, moderately pleased to see that he at least um, was able to speak out against white supremacy in a kind of somewhat generic way. But what he didn't do was that next step of actually speaking to white supremacists and saying, I'm not one of you. Don't misappropriate, you know, me for your purposes. Mm-hmm. Don't act and do terrible things and then claim somehow that I wanted you to do that. He didn't do anything to separate himself from that community, which obviously views him as their president. Yeah. And so again, that was, that's why I think as much as you talk about the social media world and the, the tech, technology world, it also matters what public officials say, particularly the number one public official. Yeah, agreed. Two last things, and I promise I'll let you go. Yahoo News recently reported that for the first time, the FBI has identified fringe conspiracy theories as a national security threat. So I guess they got hold of an FBI intelligence bulletin from the Bureau's Phoenix field office from May 30th, 2019, that described conspiracy theory driven domestic extremists as a growing threat, specifically mentioning the QAnon conspiracy theory and the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. And I just saw that. And like, if people listening don't know what QAnon or Pizzagate is, we don't really have time to explain it to you here, but Google it and you will go on a weird, dark journey. But like, have you ever, have you ever seen something like that where there's just like an anonymous conspiracy theory community, actually not even anonymous, a conspiracy theory community that has just sprung from nowhere online that has become an actual threat to people's lives? Well, you know, I actually think that the, the FBI is wise to be doing this because, again, the, the, I think about QAnon because my name showed up in one oh, of God. their little postings you know, at an early stage. Some, you know, again, as my, given my status as a deep stater, somehow I entered into their consciousness. And you know, it gave me a little pause yeah. because who knows if you know, someday on, on the street corner I might just be out walking the dog and I walk up to someone who's wearing a Q shirt and all of a sudden he's decided that I'm the enemy mm-hmm. or you know, some other official in government or somebody who's labeled in, in that particular conspiracy theory as a threat or as the bad guy. So, I mean, I'm glad the FBI is taking these threats seriously because as, as ludicrous as they seem at face value or when you're looking at them at, at, at face value, it's clear that these conspiracy theories are capable of motivating people to do terrible things. And again, it's because they they somehow convince individuals that it's existential that you you know this unless you act terrible things will happen and you know that's frightening yeah when you know we grew up thinking that that democracy is about rational discourse and that's not the democracy we live in right now
No, it is not. Last question. So we've just had this, you know, 15 minute conversation about how complex the problem is, the range of options, uh, the legal and uh, First Amendment complications. But there's a very simple solution that's on the table, right, which is just like get rid of guns. How important in your mind is gun control to the sort of overall equation of stopping these uh, domestic terrorists? You know, this is you know about as simple an equation as you can think of, because, you know, there are plenty of countries around the world where people have hateful ideologies, who have violent impulses, who have a need to act out or strike out in support of their hate-based ideology. But in most cases, they're lacking the wherewithal to do so, or they're lacking the, the tools that would allow them to be really lethal. Um, maybe they can get their hands on a knife. Maybe they can drive a car up on a curb. Maybe they can get their their hands on a handgun, but it seems like it's only here where the lethality index goes way, way up because of the availability of of high powered automatic weaponry and to me that's not some you know brilliant analytical insight that's just patently obvious mm-hmm. and when I was stepping down from the National Counterterrorism Center job um, after one year in the Trump administration, I did a farewell. Um, backgrounder um, with a bunch of um, journalists who had covered the terrorism set of issues for a number of years who I knew well. And one of them asked me that question. So is, you know, what about gun control? And I said, well, obviously, mm-hmm. you, know, t- you know, obviously less lethal weapons in the hands of the most extreme people would render us safer. Yeah. If we just didn't simply make it uh, possible for these individuals to have the worst tools of war, then we wouldn't face as nearly as lethal a problem. It wouldn't go, make the problem go away, but it would be a much smaller problem. Yeah. And so the idea that we can't wrap our heads around that politically as a country, I never really thought about gun control very much before I started working on counterterrorism, but now it just makes no sense to me that we don't think of this as a national security imperative. Yeah, agreed. Nick, thank you so much for all the work you did to uh, keep us all safe over many, many years. And thank you for doing the show today. I am always smarter when I get a chance to talk with you. Well, it's great to talk to you, Tommy. And thanks for doing what you guys do. It's important to kind of have smart, thoughtful dialogue on national security and foreign policy issues. And I think your platform really does help sustain that, even when the rest of the political landscape uh, some of that smart, rational discourse is hard to find. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, it looks like gosh. you're having some fun doing it, too, so that's great as we, well. We try. Every once in a while, I get Ben really uh, excited, and he yells about something. So, you know, <laughs> that makes my day. <laughs> All right, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Nick, for joining the show. It was great talking to you, Ben. Yeah. I feel like I threw a lot of bummer issues at you today. We, we banged on under an hour. Okay, yeah, you're right. But you're right. I think we found some connections between them, too. Yeah. You know, it's a little dark out there. It is, but this I will say that, like, with all the attention, understandably, on these shootings, like, it's important to not lose sight of this stuff that's happening around the world because we, we're not choosing to be dark here. Like, there is an unusual assortment of crises and yeah. unstable situations <laughs> that bears some attention. Right. right. There's no good news section of the paper that we're just flipping I'm past. trying to think what it would be, you know. Well, I mean, honestly, you know what? Well, we didn't I, do the Brexit update. That's going yeah, that down sucks. the tank. Thanks, you know? Rory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I was thinking, like, what would I give Trump credit on? And I guess it would be, like, taking territory back from ISIS. That would be, you know, fair. Yeah, sure. and, and that would have been the answer, like, two years ago also. Right, you know? right I mean, right. I don't... I mean, I wish I could give credit for more. I mean, I guess the argument he'll make is I beat the hell out of ISIS, okay? That was, you know, continued Obama's plan. 
What else is he pointing to? With North Korea, Iran, we've talked about that. I mean, I, I don't see the success out there. To quote Ariana Grande, thank you, next. Yeah. <laughs> what have you done for me lately, Janet Jackson? Yeah, that's how government works. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long outro. Talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Michael Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.